The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Ryan, hey, I saw you on the side of the road with that cop. What happened? Yeah, you got me going 30 over in a school zone. What? Are you crazy? Why would you do that? Well, obviously I was in a hurry. Uh, you must have got a huge ticket. Oh, no, because I had one of these. What is that? Well, this is my God in a box. I opened up the lid and uh, God took care of all my problems. He even had the cop apologize for pulling me over. Seriously? I'm surprised that little thing worked. Oh, yeah. Works for me all the time. No, that is dumb. Okay, tell him. Yeah, what you need is a supersized God in a box, baby! Wow! I know! That's awesome! Yeah! Come on, you guys don't really think you can put God in a box. Well, of course. He's there for whenever you need him. But you need him all the time. Laura, you can't walk around town with God all hanging out and exposed everywhere. I mean... People would see that. Well, isn't that what being a Christian is? I mean, people need to see God. Okay, Laura, think about it like this. Let's say you and God go out to Burger Bonanza one night. You order a burger with no pickles, but they bring it out with pickles. Oh, I hate that. Okay, enough to ruin your night. So, at this point, you're going to want to tuck God back in the box, and then you raise your voice a little bit with the worker. And maybe the manager overhears you, and he comes and he fires the worker. And when everything's taken care of, you just pull God back out. He doesn't know any different. Have a good night. Nice. No, of course he knows differently. Listen, you can't just put God away when you don't want him there and then pull him back out when you do. It doesn't work like that. God wants a relationship with you all the time. Blah, blah, blah. Okay, what you're talking about is for perfect people like Jesus. And the Pope. Right, and Mother Teresa. I mean, we're normal people. Yeah, I don't even think I could live like that. So you're telling me you can live without God? Yeah. Can you live without God? Um, yeah, it's easy. Can you die without him? Can you die without him? Come on, guys. You can't live without him either. Live without God, you can't die without him either. So I want to ask you this morning, what's in your God box? Let's see if we can get this going here. What's in your God box? I really believe that um, the reason I positioned this video just prior to the message this morning is because I believe that all of us have a God box. We have God in a box. And uh, we have preconceived notions and ideas about God that uh, who knows where they came from. In fact, it's interesting to consider where all of our ideas about God have come from. And yet there should be one supreme source of where we get our ideas about God. And you know which one it is. It's called the Bible. And uh, the scriptures should be one, the one place that is forming and informing how we think about God. And yet I think that oftentimes whenever we open the Bible, we're not thinking about reforming our view of God. We're thinking that we already have him figured out. We've got him in a box. And we're not really interested in the facts of what the scripture tells us. And I share that with you because this morning and the coming weeks, we're opening passages of Scripture that are going to challenge you of how you've put God in the box. And you're going to be looking at things that maybe you hadn't thought about God in a certain way on. And uh, it'll require perhaps a humbling of yourself and an acknowledgement that perhaps you don't understand God as well as you thought. And so let's begin this morning by looking at a couple of places in Scripture. We're going to be reading from, first of all, Isaiah chapter 55, and I'm going to have it on the screen. 
And in respect for the Word of God, would you stand with me, please, and uh, let me read to you the Word of God, Isaiah 55, beginning in verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Amen. And now, turning over into the book of Romans, where our text is for the morning, we find in Romans chapter 9 and beginning in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I'll return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done neither good nor bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we ask you, God, to open our minds and our hearts to the Scripture this morning, some of the harder things that perhaps we don't think of and don't study. And Lord, we ask you to just draw back the curtain, let us see closer in to that holy place where you dwell, to understand the God that you are instead of the God that sometimes we've created you to be. So speak to us now, we ask it for your Son's glory, in the power of the Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, in chapters 9 to 11 of Romans, we are really given uh, an understanding of the place of Israel in history. And there really is four stages of Israel's history. And this next slide helps us to understand that. Four stages of Israel's history. First of all, we see in the Old Testament that God called a man named Abraham. And Abraham uh, was, was called to become the father of the Israelite nation. And we see that God then, by his own grace, gave that people, Israel, his commandments, and they made, he made covenants with them, and he, he showed them how to be an example of how to live to please God the Creator, and they were to be a light to all the rest of the nations. We move on to the New Testament, and we find that God then sent to that same Israel their Messiah, the one that would be the anointed Jesus Christ from the line of Israel, the line of, Dave, of Abraham and David. And yet the Jewish leaders rejected Jesus because of the hardness of their hearts, and they handed him over to the Romans, and they crucified him. 
And then if you go on to the church age, which we are living in, which has been everything since the time of Pentecost until now, we see that the Jews continue to reject Jesus as their Messiah, but the door has been opened wide through the preaching of Jesus to all the nations, all Gentile peoples, not just the Jews, and there has been an influx into the kingdom of God of all kinds of people because of Jesus Christ being proclaimed. And then finally, the fourth stage of Israel's history is what is yet to be future fulfillment the scripture speaks of the fact that there will be coming a day when God will remove that hardness of the hearts of Israel and they will come to see Jesus Christ as their Messiah and a remnant of Israel will be saved before that great time of coming, Jesus Christ coming again. And so what is the Apostle Paul doing when we look at this scripture now? In Romans 9, he is taking us back to the early part of of Israel's beginnings. He's taking us back to a period called the patriarchs, the first three men that were the, the seed of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he's going to study them, and he's going to show from them not only who is Israel, but how God works and fulfills his promise to his people. Paul wants to clarify to the church at Rome and for us today, that God is faithful. God doesn't break his promises he fulfills his promises, and he has never changed the way he does so. So we're going to look at two questions this morning. We're going to talk about who are the true children of Abraham, and we're going to talk about how does God fulfill his promises to them, though it seems as though from this perspective today that God has already abandoned his people, Israel, and has rejected them because he, or they have rejected their Messiah, Jesus. So let's start by looking at who are the two children of Israel? Who is Israel? I mean, there's so, many, so much confusion around this question because when we say Israel, we don't define who we are talking about. For example, does Israel refer to just the Jewish people of the Old Testament? Does Israel refer to non-Jewish people who lived among the Jewish people of the Old Testament, followed their ways, were circumcised, obeyed the covenants and traditions? Does Israel refer to only those who are physically descendants of Abraham, the first, the father, the fountainhead of Israel? Does Israel refer to people who live in the modern state of Israel that has been formed since 1948? You can see that when we mention Israel, there's a whole option of, of uh, answers on the table as to who we are talking about. Well, Paul starts into this, and in verses 6 and 7, he says, It is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So what Paul is doing here is clarifying that not all who belong to the nation of Israel are true Israel. He has already said this, if we go back into Romans chapter 2, verse 28, here's what he wrote there. He says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. Paul is teaching that God looks at the heart. God does not look at circumcision, your lineage, your, your religious past, your, your pedigree. 
God has always wanted to look at the heart. He looks for one element in the heart. He looks for that thing called faith, the response to God. Now, later in chapter 9, and we're going to look at this in the next couple of weeks, he quotes Isaiah. Paul says this in chapter 9, verse 27, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant, he says, will be saved. So Paul is clear that his own kinsmen, Paul was a Jew, the Israelites must not think that because they have been descendants of Abraham that they are somehow safe. No Israelite is safe due to that way, outward rites, traditions, lineage, this is not safe. Even Gentiles who begin to operate as though they are Jews are not safe simply because of that, according to the Bible. And neither does anyone who belongs to the modern state of Israel necessarily belong to the true Israel, as Paul is defining it. For the modern state of Israel is even not like the Old Testament people of Israel. The modern state of Israel is not a theocracy where they see God as the sovereign king of their nation. The modern state of Israel is like most nations on earth. It is a secular state. In fact, if you go to Israel, you could meet many people that are, are outright atheists in their beliefs. And so the real issue is that in the land that God promised to Abraham's offspring, very few Jews acknowledge the true Messiah who has already come in the person of Jesus Christ. They are still awaiting a promised Messiah and an era of his reign. In fact, the Jewish understanding of the Messiah is that he will be a man descended from the house of David who will defeat the enemies of the Jews, restore the people to the land of Israel, rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, and reign there ushering in an era of peace which is going to be the messianic age to come. So, the, so the, the, the view of Messiah is a social and political kind of Messiah, more concerned about political reign and, and rule than it is about overcoming sin and offering forgiveness and eternal life, life. Most Orthodox Jews live under the deception that they still are righteous because of their relationship to Abraham, because of the law of Moses because of observing the traditions and so on. But Paul would not have had a burden for the Jews to be saved if that was all true, if that was all okay. If there were two tracks to salvation and not only one door, which is Jesus Christ. And so in, John chapter, or in Romans 10, verse 1, he says, we'll be looking at this in a couple of weeks, brothers, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. And so God's call is upon these three men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God's way of working is always to call and then to see a response of faith in him, not depending on human merit, but depending on faith in God. The true children of Abraham are those whom God calls and then those who respond to God's call. God's call is defined as election in the Bible, the doctrine of election, and our response is called faith. And these two are the seamless tunic of salvation. These two are the things that are the twin demands of the gospel, as John Stott calls it, the repentance and faith, the understanding that God calls. 
And so what does Paul do in Romans 9, in the text that we're looking at? He takes the first three patriarchs and he uses them as examples of election and faith and how God operates. In each of these men, we see both the, the choosing of God and we see the response of faith. Now let's talk about that. Abraham, for, to begin with. Abraham was an idolater. Abraham had no understanding of the true and living God. He lived in a land called Ur of the Chaldeans, and along with his forefathers, he worshipped the moon and the sun and things that were of the earth. And then one day, God, the living God, appeared to Abraham. So there was nothing inherent in Abraham that made him cho God choose him. He was chosen by God and elected out of all the Ur, all the Chaldeans that lived there. And when we move on to, to, to talk about Abraham's sons, the firstborn was Ishmael. You know the story of Abraham and Sarah. They were getting old. It says in the scriptures in Hebrews that they were as good as dead as far as fertility went. And so they decided that they would help God with his promises. You know, I want you to know that God doesn't need any help fulfilling his promises. And so they, they helped God along, and, and Abraham took Sarah's maidservant, Hagar, slept together, had a child, they named him Ishmael. But God said, I didn't plan on having you sleep with some other woman. I, I told you, I'll fulfill my promise. And so he waited until Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was 90 years old. And then he said, okay, this time next year, you're going to have your son, Isaac, the child of the promise. And that's why in Romans 9, verse 8, it says, It is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of a promise as counted as offspring. And then he goes on and he talks in, in verse 10 about Isaac's children. And uh, you can read about it in Genesis chapter 25. And in, in that scripture, we read about how Rebekah was pregnant with twins. And before they were born, the Lord speaks to her. The Lord tells her, two nations are within your womb, and two peoples will be divided, and the older shall serve the younger. Well, that was not according to Jewish custom. But Paul points out in Romans 9.11 that it, all this occurred before the twins were born, before they had done either good or bad, in verse 11, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was God who chose Jacob and not Esau. It was God. Before they were born, before they'd done anything good, there was nothing inherent in Jacob that made God choose him, and so on. You see, God does not fit into our boxes, does he? God does not fit into the boxes we've made. They may be theological boxes, philosophical boxes, exegetical boxes, uh, existential boxes and the reason is because he does not want us to have some kind of an impersonal legalistic formulaic relationship with him he wants real intimacy real relationship he wants us to know that we really are loved by him like children he does not want us to to see him as a god in a box god on a string God the way I want to imagine him. He refuses to be defined with our temporal, social, human-centered, political ideologies. There will come a day, friends, there will come a day when all who lean to the right 
will not find God to be as rigid and binding as legal and legalistic as they thought. And there will come a day when all who lean to the left will not find God to be as permissive and progressive and woke as they thought. Folks, God will not be put in a box. And why is that? Because God says, I am who I am. That's what God said. And either you accept God on his terms or there's no relationship there. You say, God comes and he says, you need to understand and accept me on my terms and I'm going to come to you on my terms and I'm going to have you come to me on my terms. You can't come to God on your terms. Someone said that God created humans in his own image and then humans turned around and, re and returned the favor. <laughs> they, re they create God in their image. We can't do that. And so God saw that Israel was putting him in a box and he had to send the prophets and keep on reminding them, this is who I am. Let me read to you a, a quote, fairly extensive quote. God often chooses the very opposite of that which man chooses and has always done so. God did not choose Abraham's Ishmael, but Abraham's Isaac. He did not choose Isaac's Esau, but Isaac's Jacob. He did not choose Jacob's eldest son Reuben, but Jacob's fourth son Judah. He did not choose Jesse's firstborn son Eliab, but Jesse's youngest son David. In all these instances, God's choice was contrary to human law and Jewish custom. God's action and election are always according to his own will. Amen. And so, in answer to the first question, who are the true children of Israel, of Abraham? It's those whom God has chosen and those who choose God. That's the answer. Now, that not, may not suffice. That may not satisfy your curiosity, your intellect. We live in an age which is called enlightened. We live in an age when science has taught us that we can solve every problem, understand every equation, and we put God in the box and say, we can understand God's equation too. And the Bible teaches us, and for centuries it wasn't even disputed, that God was sovereign, that God elects. And we didn't have to compute and figure it out in the little puny brain that's between the ears of our heads. We didn't have to understand God that way. We could let these two doctrines of human responsibility to God's election, we could let them hang together without having to, to dissolve them together. Because I don't know, we can. The Greek word antinomi, antinomy, against logic, it doesn't, it doesn't compute in this brain. But because I don't understand something does not mean I sit in judgment over it and therefore say, can't be true. i gotta, I got to reduce God to my box. Jesus is having a confrontation in John chapter 8. Before I go on to that, I want to just say, going back to Abraham, clearly you can see that Abraham was chosen out of all these people randomly. Seems random. You can clearly see that. Abraham was chosen out of all the people in Ur of the Chaldeans, yes. But what does it say about Abraham? It says he was justified by faith. It says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. No one is going to stand before God and say, you're not just, you're not fair. We're going to talk about that next week. Paul talks about it in verse 14. 
Jesus is having a confrontation in John chapter 8. He's going toe-to-toe with the bigwigs, the big league, the Jewish leaders. This little rabbi from Nazareth, in whom happens to live the Godhead, is going toe-to-toe with the big religious leaders. And he's saying to them, if, if Abraham was your father, you'd have accepted me. And, and they're saying, we don't, who cares about you? We have Abraham as our father. Incredible. They were rejecting Jesus because they thought physical descent from Abraham was enough. And Jesus was re- rejecting them because they did not really have spiritual descent from Abraham by faith in him as the Messiah. Well, we need to move on and talk about the second question. How does God fulfill his promises to his people Israel? We've kind of already alluded to the answer. God fulfills his promises his way. And he always looks for faith to be the confirmation of electing grace. In Romans 9, verse 10, we read these words. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had done neither good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. We're going to talk about those tough words. But clearly, God's, God's purposes, God's promises are fulfilled to the spiritual descendants of Abraham, true Israel, It's not about ancestry. It's not about physical descent. It's not about fleshly ability. It's not about our good performance as being religious people and moral and upright. It's not about our human works and ways. God shows that through the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then he he shows us that in every situation, it's by supernatural intervention. Did you not hear in Matt's testimony some supernatural intervention this morning? How is it that God's love laid a hold of Matt and Mercedes? You see, you've got to see that God, God's hand is in every one of us. The Bible says in Ephesians that as for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. How responsive is a dead man? And yet it says right in a few verses later, but God, who is rich in mercy, made you alive. He awakened you to Jesus Christ. And so in this scripture, we see that it indeed is both halves of the equation. All three of these patriarchs, friends, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they responded in faith. They responded in faith to God. What about these tough words at the end of verse 13? We stumble over them. This is one of the reasons why in this church family we decided we were going to preach through books of the Bible because you can't just ignore difficult passages. I'd be glad to not have to preach on this one. But when you preach through the whole counsel of God, you have to deal with the stuff that that is hard to understand, difficult to receive. You can't ride your hobby horses in the pulpit. Jacob I loved, Esau I have hated. Some have suggested that hate here refers to the same idea that Jesus did in Luke chapter 14, verse 26, something that actually... Isaac, Matt and Mercedes' son, referenced when he talked to them about what God was saying. In Luke 14, 26, Jesus said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoa! 
That's pretty heavy language. Does God want us to hate our families? No, God does not want us to hate our families. What is this? This is called hyperbolic language. In other words, the language is given exaggeration to get the point across. The point is that Jesus does not expect us to hate our families, but in comparison to our love for him, it might feel like we're putting our families way down on the list when we follow the lordship of Jesus Christ. So is that, is that what it means when it says, Jacob, I have loved and Esau I have hated? I don't think so. I don't think that there's just primary exaggeration language going on here. I think the key to understanding it is back in the Old Testament with the original story. As I've already shared in Genesis 25, Rebecca was told before, she was conce- or before the children were born, she, she was told, two nations are in your womb, two peoples will be divided. And in that same chapter later on, we see these two boys are born. Indeed, Jacob comes out second, not first. But later on in that same chapter, what happens with Esau, the firstborn? He sells his birthright. He despises the firstborn privilege that is given to him by God. He reveals in in other ways later on after chapter 25, you read about it, he reveals that he does not have a belief in God. But we see that Jacob does. Jacob wrestles with God. Jacob comes to put his faith in God. And so if we follow this history through further, we see that not only does Esau reject God, but the people that come from Esau also reject God. They're called the Edomites. The Edomites were enemies of Israel. The Edomites were always hostile to Israel. The Edomites worshipped idolatrous things. They, they They made statues and worshipped them. They didn't follow the true and living God. So I believe the most reasonable way of understanding Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated is to not think about Esau the man. God does not hate Esau the man, but the nation that had descended from him who turned away from him, God and were hostile to his people. Well, we want to wrap this up soon and I just want to ask you, going back to the beginning of the message I just want to ask you, what's in your God box? We've, we've put a lot on the table this morning, and I know that uh, th- this can be difficult to consume in one sermon. But are you willing to let God be God in your life? Are you willing to open up the box, the God box that you have, take it off the shelf, just like Matt took that dusty Bible off the shelf? <laughs> Are you willing to take that Bible off the shelf and open it up and say, God, maybe I've been wrong about you. You see, there's coming a day, friends, when God's going to send the box again. The real God box. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is returning. And every one of us will see him. That's the real God box. In Jesus Christ, we see the fullness of God in flesh. And God is going to send Jesus Christ, and and, and then when we have our comparative God boxes, we're going to realize how wrong we've been in certain ways. Are we willing to adjust now? And I want you to know that if you're stumbling over this doctrine of election, if you can't compute it in your brain, well, welcome to the club. I'm there. 
But I believe that the same God who said that I was chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world also said to me, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And I'll let God figure out how those two truths reconcile in our, in our practice. I'll let God figure that out. And our response needs to be not trying to figure out God's side of this, but responding with our side. And our side is faith. And as the worship team comes this morning, and we're going to have one more song in this service, I want to really ask you, what, what's it, what does your faith look like? Is your faith in the wrong kind of God that you've put in the box? Is your faith in the God of the Bible that, that you're studying and reading about and drawing near to? And today you have been given testimony by two people who have come out of darkness into light. God has brought them out of the, the past that they were in, in blindness, and into the light of knowing Him and now walking with Him. And uh, does, that, does that ring a bell with you? Does that resonate with you? Is your journey one out of darkness into light? May the Lord bless His word to us today. Thank you. Lord God, you are worthy of all of our praise. You are worthy of all of our worship. And we give that to you this morning. Lord, you are unchanging. You created us, and we did not create you. And Father, I pray that we would continue to look to you as the unchanging one and not try to make us make you into what we want you to be. And there are so many things that we don't understand. There are so many things about the mechanics of how you work that we don't see. But at the same time as that, we know that you are good and we know that you are love and we know that you are just and we know that you are powerful and we know that you carry us and you care for us and we know that we can trust you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would just guide us in this journey with Jesus and help us to trust you more, help us to love you more. And I thank you that you keep showing us more things about you. May we be all ears. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a wonderful day.